Skinny Trees: Lifting Health for All is a podcast from the Simon Research Lab at the Center for Health Equity Transformation, hearing voices from the research and community world with a focus on health equity. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all. My name is Rabia with the Simon Research Lab at the Center for Health Equity Transformation. And my name is Arisali as well with the Simon Research Lab at the Center for Health Equity Transformation. Today we are sitting in the office or conference room rather、uh, in the office of Dr. Clyde Yancey, Vice Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at the Chief and Chief of Cardiology in the Department of Medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is a Magistrat Professor. And former president of the American Heart Association, in 2014 he received the Gold Heart Award from the AHA, the American Heart Association, the organization's highest honor, and the Physician of the Year Award、um, in 2003.、Uh, Dr. Yancey arrived in Northwestern in 2011 from Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, where he served as Chief of Cardiothoracic Transplant Services and Director of the Baylor Heart and Vascular Institute. At Northwestern, he is also the associate director of the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute, and is ranked as one of the most highly cited researchers in the world, with over 400 publications focused on areas of hypertension, heart failure, preventive cardiology, and ethnic and racial disparities in cardiovascular disease. He is a graduate of Tulane University School of Medicine, 1982, and in 2016 was elected to the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Yancey, welcome to the Skinny Trees Podcast. Delighted to be a part of this, and I love the name, the Skinny Trees Podcast. This is、uh, exciting. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So we'll we'll start with some very、um, important and serious questions that our listeners、um, are just dying to know.、Um, one of the first one first questions are thin crust or deep dish. As a cardiologist with true, <laughs> truly legitimate、yeah. credentials, as a cardiologist, no crust. No crust. <laughs> right. Or cauliflower crust. But if if I have to vote,、um, thin crust or deep dish, it would be ultra thin crust with a lot of vegetables to mitigate some of the、uh, risk. But yeah,、um, I would be. I would prefer no crust. Okay. Well, that was good. He passed the test. <laughs> Next question. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Be my mother. Your mother. I lost my mother in the nineties, and I attribute everything I've ever accomplished to、um, her inspiration, her fierce determination that I would get to another place in life, her coaching, her cajoling, and her steadfast, unyielding, unwavering support when no one else thought I could do any of the things I dreamed that I, that I would want to do, and she never doubted for a second. My ability to get to the next level, and without her support, this wouldn't have happened. So I would love to、um, sit down and listen to her、um, berate me for a moment, <laughs> and、uh, and then、um, I would love for her to hug me again. That would be a joy beyond belief. Yeah, but I'm sure she would love to have dinner with you as well.、Yeah. And particularly, she would help me cook. Oh, she would help me then, cook. Because then, no, if she would let me cook,、oh, because then I could、cook. recreate the recipes that I learned from her. Oh, <laughs> Next question: What was the first movie you cried in? You know, I think the the real question is:、um, 
were there movies that had a social impact on me that made me feel something visceral? And there are a number of movies like that. Um, it's not because I don't cry, but it's because I think that that's what you're getting at. And so um, I really would highlight um, about three movies that got me to that point. Um, Lincoln, I thought, was an incredibly moving movie. It was such a clear and accurate depiction of life in one of the darkest periods of our country. It was a portrayal of statesmanship, a portrayal of leadership, a portrayal of hatred, a portrayal of all the perverse influences that were at play at once, all the economic underpinnings. And I was really uh, spellbound when I watched the movie and paused for a considerable time thereafter. Um, most recently, The Green Book had the same effect on me. That's within my consciousness. Grew up in the Deep South, and I knew that such a thing existed. And to see it depicted and realize that there's nothing in that movie that is fanciful or unbelievable. <laughs> I know for a fact those things did occur. So that really uh, caused me to sit and take notice. And then, <clears throat> uh, there's a bunch of movies that gave me the opposite, opposite feeling. Um, but The Untouchables. Done here in Chicago, great cast, Kevin Costner, Sean Connery. And there is a part where the guys are on horseback taking on the adversaries. And Sean Connery says, oh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and you just have this sense of, wow. But then when the character played by Sean Connery was murdered, there's just something inside that tells you how cruel life can be. So, yeah, three movies. Thank you. Thank that, you for sharing. I think we should do a movies podcast now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah these are some good, some good movies to add to the list. Yeah. One thing, uh, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned you grew up in the South, um, which brings me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. How has your upbringing influenced how you see healthcare today? So growing up in the South, not just in the South, but growing up in a segregated community and feeling the sting of hatred on a regular basis and understanding that we had to provide our own services to our community. Experiencing a singular physician, probably with one year postgraduate training, provided all services and all ways for all persons living in the community. Immunizations, childbirth, fractures, colds, cancers. It really impressed upon me that there are communities that suffer the consequence of not only inadequate access, but insufficient expertise. Mm. And it was my intention to, as much as I could, make certain that the communities with which I engaged and the communities that I represent would experience health and healthcare in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I was further impacted by seeking training at universities that used uh, traditional safety net hospitals, Charity Hospital of New Orleans, 
being a truly legendary prototypical safety net hospital. And I'll never forget the first day walking in as a medical student and immediately identifying that the hospital was set up, built as a mirror image. Everything on the left side appeared on the right side and the patient card either had a C or a W and that dictated which way a patient was triaged to receive care. Those moments are embedded in your memory in a way that they cannot be removed because it reminds me that this kind of bias, this kind of segregation, this kind of overtly limited and disadvantaged healthcare system has occurred within my lifetime. It's only two generations removed. So you never forget about those things. So um, I have tried to be within my bandwidth, the champion for health equity. I've tried to raise awareness about discriminatory practices. I've tried, I've tried to raise awareness about the importance of understanding subconscious bias, dealing with subconscious bias. An area of fairly robust research in my portfolio has been to identify, elucidate, and look for root causes of cardiovascular disease disparities as a function of race mm -hmm. and ethnicity. It's amazing that in 2019, in 2019, we are still pursuing something that was articulated over 50 years ago by Martin Luther King Jr. We still have these evident disparities. Things are getting better, but it demonstrates just how deep the cultural persuasions are mm -hmm. that enables one group and disadvantages another group. Um, I know you mentioned subconscious bias. Um, can you please define bias in healthcare settings and give us an example of implicit or subconscious bias? So I really believe that's an incredibly important question and a very important concept. Recognizing all of us are products of our acculturation. We respond to our own personal ecosystem. We are members of a certain social network. There are predominant themes in those social networks. There are predominant experiences in those ecosystems that really define who we are. What we rarely appreciate is the extent to which those themes and those experiences create subconscious neural pathways that immediately evoke a response and incline us to make a decision based on this context that evolves over time that is an aggregate of the themes that we share with others in our immediate network and experiences that we've had, it's perfectly appropriate for us to be products of our culture. But what we have to do is to be aware of that and not allow that experience to overtly impact our decision-making, particularly when you're in the business, as I am, of making decisions that directly affect another person's health and another person's life. And so it's really important that practitioners understand that first response, that gut response, that's the one you have to manage very carefully. We like to say in today's world, as you are encountering a patient that is different from you, check your assumptions at the door. Don't bring your assumptions into the room or at the bedside and allow them to formulate your thought process. So for example, 
the mere description of a 68-year-old African-American man who presents for the first time to undergo an evaluation for cardiovascular disease risk assessment, 90% of physicians, before walking in the room, before looking at one piece of objective data, will assume that individual is hypertensive, change the gender, and say it's a 68-year-old African-American woman or a 71-year-old Latino woman. Before seeing one bit of objective data, a practitioner will assume that that patient will be obese, maybe even morbidly obese, will have diabetes, and will have hypertension. That is the subconscious bias at play. In a lay perspective, it really is stereotyping. And there's not anything uniquely bad about stereotyping because it's a kind of thought economy. It allows us to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations by doing a kind of a group think in our own mind. But where it becomes sinister is when we let that bucketing process be the predominant way that we experience an encounter with another person. I know you touched on this um, a little bit earlier, but what, what made you interested in pursuing a career in medicine and research specifically? So medicine was locked in CMEM by the time I was 10. Once I realized that this one practitioner, still remember his name, um, was trying to provide care to everyone in the community, about 20,000 people in, in our community, and he did everything for everyone, I thought, I'm going to do that. For whatever reason, it just struck me that that's what I wanted to do. Mm. I had been imbued with a sense of service for my own personal culturation through um, the African-American churches and the worship experience, through a sense of benevolence from being in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts, and then through an unbelievable thirst for science. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, it all intersected well. And this is what I want to do is be a physician. It really wasn't until I became um, an intern resident that I really began to understand the potential of research. I'll never forget telling a senior resident who had impressed me so remarkably because of his fund of knowledge that when I complimented him about how facile he was with information, he said, the most important thing is not what you know, but understanding what you don't know, and what questions need to be answered. I'll never forget that exchange because he really opened the door and said, it's not fascinating to know a lot. A lot of people can learn a lot. Yeah. What's fascinating is to identify the unanswered questions and pursue those. So I've been on this journey since 1987 or so, trying to answer a variety of different questions that relate to cardiovascular disease in general, but heart failure and hypertension more specifically. Thank you. I wanted to ask, as Vice Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at Northwestern, how do you promote equity in career advancement, recruitment, and policies at Northwestern? You know, that might be the easiest question you could ask me. And the reason I say it's easy is because the answer is very simple. Change in the culture. That's the answer. But the execution is unbelievably complex, somewhat taxing, and it has to be an unyielding march towards a tier where the cultural awareness, 
the cultural adaptations are more accommodating of our differences and realize that our differences are not to be simply tolerated, but celebrated because there's excellence that comes from so many different directions. So the answer to your question is really easy. My task when I accepted the responsibility mm -hmm. said we may assign a metric that we have to meet, but what I am going to champion is culture change. Because culture change, if you think about this, is lasting. Mm -hmm. Overnight, I can recruit X new number of underrepresented minority faculty or women faculty. Overnight, I can promote X number of women to leadership positions or underrepresented faculty to leadership positions, but it's not sustainable. Right. Unless we change the culture so that there is a keen awareness that excellence comes from many different directions and the talent pool is actually broad, not narrow, then none of those kinds of procedural things that would massage numbers and would change metrics matter. What matters is that we create a culture. That's sustainable. I wanted to do something, and I hope I am doing something, that will persist long after I've retired and I'm somewhere playing golf. <laughs> <laughs> so where does that start, the culture change? So unbelievably insightful question. We're late in the game when we try to effectuate culture change in professional adults that already have a well-adopted platform of thought, of understanding, of behavior. It is much more likely to be a sustained and easier experience if it is initiated with young adults, even at the threshold of elementary and secondary schools. But we have to start someplace. And we have to be responsive to the dynamics of our changing population. What does that mean? It means that in 2019, we are less than one year removed from a situation where for persons under the age of 18 in this country, there will no longer be a majority population defined as a population that is present at greater than a 50% threshold. We will be a plurality, a mix of a number of cohorts, populations, none of which eclipses 50%. That means that everything about our society has to accommodate this. Our economics, our housing, our judiciary, everything has to accommodate this changing dynamic, but particularly healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so we need to appreciate that if it's only for business imperative, it's really important that we move quickly with at least raising our cultural awareness and nudging our cultural enhancement because we have to be prepared for a very different constituency than we ever had before. Thinking about this from a broader point of view, what are the next steps and barriers to achieving a diverse and inclusive workforce in healthcare? Whenever one is trying to do something that is arduous or that is going to require meeting a high bar or that is going to require, as I've already articulated, culture change, in order to achieve this particular objective of a more diverse faculty, more diverse population of students, graduate students, staff, it starts at the very top. There has to be an investment by the topmost tier of leadership that this is important because there are only several ways that you can change culture. 
You can change culture by fiat. If a leader says, this is our new mission, these are our new attributes, you will be congratulated, rewarded, promoted because of your ability to adopt these new cultural pillars that we are accepting. That's a way to, that you change culture. Right. You change culture then through communication, through dialogue, through demystifying things that are new and different, and permitting open exchange, inviting criticism, mm -hmm. having the sometimes rough conversations, but also celebrating the successes. And you promote culture change by getting the work done, by demonstrating, again, excellence that exists everywhere. Once you've got leadership that buys into this, once you've accommodated communication and you're discussing things in a transparent, thoughtful, scholarly way, and you're bringing to the table case studies, evidence, experiences that demonstrate the utility of a more diverse campus. That changes everything. One of the things that really strikes me, one of the ways that people amaze me is that we don't respond much to numbers, but we respond uniquely to stories. Yes. I can sit here and tell you that by the age of 50, 50% 50 of African Americans have high blood pressure. That does not move the needle. But when I tell you that recently a famous producer of A-level movies, 51 years of age, African American, died of a devastating stroke, everybody pauses. Everybody pauses and say, wow, how did that happen? The story is much more impactful than the numbers. Yeah. So when you talk about culture change, it's leadership, it's communication, it's presenting examples, it's telling stories. Yeah, that makes, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You have to understand the, understand the stories and see yeah. the true impact. Yeah. So one of the um, things we read in the newsletter um, yeah. from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion is you have an upcoming town hall, October 25th. Could you talk a little bit about what to expect at this town hall um, and maybe if you could weave into this the um, strategic plan that's included and in, was mentioned in previous newsletters? So full transparency, okay. I, I have no clue what's going to happen <laughs> in that town hall because Dr. Okay. Franklin is um, serving as a champion of that town hall. Okay. I've given him a candidate name of a speaker with whom I've interacted who um, has a brilliant approach to organizational culture change. That sounds pretty sterile, but when you listen to it and participate, it's pretty evocative. It really does make you think differently. But let's not go away from this topic too quickly. Let's, let's think about mm -hmm. the town hall experiences we've had before. Yeah. One of the most compelling town hall experiences was at the end of the summer when there had been multiple acts of aggression. Okay. One in Missouri, one especially in Louisiana, my hometown, Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. And the aggressors were of different races. And so rather than having a town hall meeting about how egregious this was, that these African-Americans were accosted and harmed in Missouri, the same thing happened where African-Americans had accosted and harmed police officers in Baton Rouge. So thematically, we were not talking about race per se. 
we were talking about why is a violent response the response of the day. And we had a sophisticated person from Evanston come in, skilled in consensus building, skilled in arbitration, to really conduct a very balanced discussion so that no political theme, no agenda, no soapbox issue predominated, but that everyone had a chance to voice the pain, the anguish, the discomfort they felt. And it was a remarkable moment because I felt that everyone came into the auditorium from perspectives that were 360 degrees portrayed around the center. Mm -hmm. And we left the room, maybe not linear, but a lot less dispersion than before. So that was a very interesting experience. And in my mind, that's the ideal town hall where there's a fair exchange of information where people listen to each other mm -hmm. and leave with a different perspective. Thank you. Um, okay. Thank you for describing that. W one of the things, if if you um, could comment, uh, your time at AHA. So at, a at the American Heart Association, you had a national role yeah. um, in affecting change in the population at large and, and decreasing cardi death due to cardiovascular disease. Um, most famously, you, you were um, behind the Life Simple 7 for cardiovascular health. Can you tell us maybe what policies were most effective in reaching the underserved populations, um, specifically in, in the cardiovascular disease prevention area? You know, it's a great question because the answer is disconcerting. There were no strategies that were effective okay. in reaching the underserved population for a reason that is uniquely sobering. After persisting over and over and over again and again and again to try to bring these messages to a community with which I identify, I hit a pause button and reached out to leaders in the African-American media and spoke with a number of lay magazine editors, journal editors, mm -hmm. magazine editors. So what part of the message are we not formulating correctly? What are we not doing right? And one of them smiled and said, people in the community that you're trying to reach out are not very interested in learning about how they can live longer. Their lives are difficult. Their lives are tough. They're not much interested in a longer life if they've got to put up, if they have to put up with less access to health care, a struggle to find nutrition, challenges with housing, difficulty with education. The reason why those communities enjoy lighthearted news and really celebrate entertainment and music is because they need relief from their day-to-day -day stress. And you come in with this utopian message that if you do these seven things, you can live a life free of heart disease and stroke. They're basically saying, I'm going to deselect from that. I don't need much more of the angst that I'm going through every day. That really brought me down to earth in a major way and told me that these differences in health are deeply, deeply embedded, less in biology and more in the social fabric of how people experience life. Mm -hmm. So I think we haven't found the right way to disseminate messages about health and well-being to certain communities, with one exception. I've had the privilege, and I still have the privilege, of occasionally sharing a podium on the platform with persons that are high profile in social media today, but in entertainment and 
and uh, film industry in years past. And it's remarkable, remarkable how communities at risk respond to role models, which for them qualifies as someone that is talented as an athlete, talented as a musician, talented as an actor. And it once again brought to my awareness, keenly so, that if you're trying to, again, effectuate culture change, mm -hmm. not only is it about communication, but you need notes, NODS, you need role models, you need voices, you need, in today's world, it would be called influencers. Mm -hmm. You need those individuals to embrace the message that you're portraying. Mm -hmm. A physician, old and bald, is not an influencer. But to do something um, with a celebrity, mm -hmm. people will pay attention. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I've okay. learned. We'll see. Okay. Um, so the final question that we ask all our guests, are there any book and or podcast recommendations that you have for our listeners? So there are two books that I'd love for you to, to um, share with your listeners. Um, I've read this book actually more than once. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. And the title is Blink. And it's because it is such an accurate description of these subconscious neural networks that really influence the way we behave and the way we think. And every time I pick it up, I glean another little nuance from it. So I would recommend anyone who is fascinated by these issues of subconscious bias, subconscious neural networks that influence our decision-making to pick up a copy of Blink. The other book is a book that I'm reading right now. Just picked it up, um, and it's called Factfulness. And the message being delivered is phenomenal because it really says, you know what? Things are not as bad as they seem. And once you sit down and start thinking about it, you put it down and you are somewhat reassured that somehow or another the momentum of the universe is still on an upward trajectory. The headlines are bothersome. The politics are distasteful today. But the trajectory is still going in a good direction. For old folk, we need to see that from time to time. <laughs> I think everyone needs to see that. Yeah. yeah. I think we all have a so those are the books, Factfulness and Blink. for listening to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All. Please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more or getting involved in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, visit our website linked in this episode's description. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can contact us at skinnytreespodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at skinnytrees312 or visit our website at skinnytreespodcast.com. Next time, our team recorded our first Out on the Field episode in an urban farm in Chicago's South Side, an organization that addresses the fresh food access problem in the city. V.
views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute of Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the lab of Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views or policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.